Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. I don't know about you, I'm losing track of time right now. <laughs> I don't know if it's been a week since the last episode. I don't know what week it is. I don't even barely know what day it is most of the time at the moment. Easter holidays did not help, or did help, I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure you all feel much the same. <laughs> time is getting squishy and wishy-washy and hard to comprehend. Anyway, let's carry on with the weekly squeak. I have an interview with Chris Longstaff of MindTech in this episode, and I've got a handful of links for you and a few bits and pieces of news. So let's jump straight in to the links. This is not a new article. I don't always mention new articles. I mention um, things that have sort of crossed my plate, come, come across, that have interested me as I've been researching other things. So this is an article from The Guardian from uh, last year, from Stephen Poole, um, about robot authors. Um, I've been looking into this because I had a strange idea uh, with my wife, uh, I'm not sure, probably a year ago now, when she mentioned some of the books she reads. And to me, they sounded very formulaic. And I said to her, kind of jokingly, I think uh, a computer could write those. It's basically like plug in these various variables and then just write the same thing each time. And of course, this was also in uh, 1984 and um, I think probably some other dystopian books as well. And it actually got us both thinking, could we do Could we do this? Could we write like a sort of mass market romance book with an AI? <laughs> and we'd be doing some digging into this subject. And uh, actually I came across a few things in this week that were sort of going into this um, and some of the playgrounds where you could actually experiment with getting an AI to finish sentences for you and things like that, which isn't quite what we were doing, but it was... Um, was sort of uh, an interesting experiment to see how possible it was. Uh, and this article refers a lot to the GP2 library put out by, by OpenAI last year and then who withdrew it again. And strangely, one of the playgrounds I found was using it. I don't entirely understand how they were using it if it isn't available or there's a subset available or it's slightly confusing to understand exactly what it is because sometimes you sort of get into reading uh, somewhere between very high overview think pieces and then really in-depth pieces about natural language processing and sometimes not a lot in between. So it's hard to know exactly what uh, what you're reading sometimes. But this article is, a, is a very much a high-level overview of what is possible. There are already some robot authors used in some journalism, especially highly statistical journalism like financial reporting or sports reporting. Um, and definitely no writers are already using... Um, assistants like Grammarly and things like that, which do not write for you, but they prompt you to change your writing in certain ways. And I've always wondered about how they are affecting your writing. I actually did a presentation on this subject uh, last year, the year before last at SoapConf. There is a video of it, so you could uh, dig that out. I'll try and find it and add it to the notes for the show. But yeah, uh, it's, 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 it was an interesting article that had a few good links out to some of the things I then dug into in a bit more detail. So if you want to find some of those yourself and have an explore yourself, then uh, have a look, see what you come up with. Send me the links of what you end up or what your AI ends up writing for you. Now an article from Wired by Manuel Midolo. Um, this is, I seem to have turned, had a, I seem to have what I should call SoftBank Corner on the podcast. Well, this is specifically to do with WeWork, which, um, well, <laughs> Maybe also we need a WeWork corner. Um, don't blame coronavirus for WeWork's collapse. Blame WeWork. Um, WeWork is 
collapsing, maybe. I don't know. I haven't really heard any confirmation of this, but this article implies they are. Um, obviously, co-working is not a business model that is working very well when no one can use it. Um, and lots of people are cancelling memberships of co-working. I know from some of the the staff at co-working spaces here in Berlin that are uh, struggling. It's very difficult to replicate what they do and people are cancelling their memberships. Uh, corporate offices are cancelling their memberships, which is where all of these places actually make their money, etc., etc. It's quite a hard time for co-working, especially if you are a co-working space propped up by a lot of money from an outside investor that has never been profitable and has a lot of very expensive real estate. So I think WeWork are trying to blame coronavirus, but their their problems were already there, of course. We knew about their failed IPO and things like that. They're using it as an additional excuse, but um, it's not the beginning of their problems. And this kind of is exacerbated and summarized in uh, um, news from April the 1st, so two weeks ago, that SoftBank decided not to buy $3 billion of their stock, uh, dealing a blow to shareholders and also dealing a blow, I guess, to confidence in the company. And I have seen articles coming up the past couple of days showing that SoftBank are equally finally hitting financial troubles. And I was wondering how long that would take um, if you are regular listeners to to SoftBank Corner because it, they're an investor who is constantly, well, not constantly, but regularly invested in companies with large amounts of money that are not profitable. So, <laughs> so there will come a point where that will become a problem. And yes, it looks like that problem is coming. Um, what will happen to Uber? I have seen lots of Uber cars driving around, but I don't know how many people are using them. So they may start getting hit by very particular, similar problems as well. Now, this is a, an old article, nothing new at all from, um, I doubt, a blog that I've ever featured on the Weekly Squeak, listverse.com. <laughs> I think it was just a good summary of what I wanted to discuss. This is something by Elizabeth Anderson called 10 Bizarre Calendars from History. This mostly came up and why I started looking around the subject, because after a conversation with a friend, he mentioned the International Fixed Calendar, a calendar that has 13 months first proposed by a worker from the British Railway, but actually popularised by uh, Kodak Eastman. They actually, for, I have to go and find the number here, for nearly 70 years, Kodak actually operated on this calendar, right up to 1989, uh, and probably did a lot to popularise it. But it, one of its main problems, so actually I should explain what it is. It has 13 months, each have 28 days. So it's very easy to kind of know how many days in a month and etc etc but the problem was of course lots of public holidays would have to shift and this is what most upset people (laughs) and as with any alternate calendar and of course there are nine more in this article there are problems with uh, communicating with the outside world and there are examples of this in various ways like the Japanese have their own form of calendar um The Jewish world has its own form of calendar. The Arabic world has its own form of calendar. There are actually many alternate calendars in partial use, but generally people also recognize another calendar, the the calendar that most of the world uses, which is the Gregorian calendar. And one interesting thing to note with especially the Gregorian calendar, but other calendars, is as is often the case with um, things from history, it's maybe not as old as we think, and it was not always used I suppose as global trade became more and more important, it was more important to um, to solidify around one thing. 
but there are still definitely alternate calendars used by lots and lots of people. Uh, and depending where you'd go in the world, they would possibly be very confused by you referring to the date as the, uh, whatever the date is today, <laughs> something April <laughs> 2020. They might think of it as something else. And this is quite an interesting article to, to look at some of those alternate views, some from history, some not so old, and what the various positives and negatives about those calendars were. What's your favourite calendar? There's a question for you. And now an article from the MIT Technology Review by Will Douglas Heaven. Uh, I'm sorry, I was trying to avoid the subject, but I'm mostly skirting around the edges of the subject and why the coronavirus lockdown is making the internet stronger than ever. I think a lot of people thought the internet would really struggle with so many people working from home and streaming. And granted, to begin with, it did. Um, but it has mostly stabilised, I think, through various measures. Um, it depends where you are in the world, of course. Um, but actually, this connects nicely with something I've witnessed happening around Berlin as well, in that it's spurred, it's kick-started a needed upgrade to certain bits of infrastructure too. Companies are rolling out upgrade programs that were probably scheduled but are now kind of needed more than ever and helping keep things going and also doing compromises like, for example, um, with lots of the streaming services saying to the European Union that they would reduce the uh, stream quality from 4K, um, because you could argue, do you really need 4K anyway? And so it helps everybody. And this has been interesting to see. As I say, this is something I have noticed happening in Berlin on the physical, well, the internet is obviously physical, but um, in something you can see, I've noticed lots of building projects really rapidly uh, getting completed. The workers are still working there because there's less people in the way. Um, I've noticed various infrastructure upgrades to the public transport system here, building sites getting finished much quicker because there's less traffic, less public transport running, less people around. So strangely, whilst we're all not using it, <laughs> the world is getting upgraded around us, again, depending where you are, I suppose. Um, and the same thing is happening to the internet. And this has often been through uh, statistical analysis. So some of the various companies involved in keeping infrastructure going or providing infrastructure are noticing when spikes are in certain parts of the world and shifting resources around to, to help. And this is something they've always done, but they're doing it on a much larger scale and on a different scale. For example, the traditional centres of some cities where um, business was happening are obviously not using much capacity right now. In fact, they're probably using very little, whereas in the suburbs of some cities, people are using more now. So they've shifted around a lot of the capacity to, to match. And this actually relates a lot to the initial structure and design of the, uh, the, the protocols that run the internet. It was supposed to be flexible and it's showing that it actually works quite well, this fairly old technology. So it's good to hear there's more life yet and we will all be allowed to keep streaming our meetings for who knows how long anyway. All right, now here is my interview with Chris Longstaff from Mindtech. This was an interesting uh, company, uh, as you will hear, but um, Chris was basically trying to show me a presentation as he talked, and I don't know how much this comes – well, it's going to definitely come across in the interview. I tried to edit it a bit so um, it doesn't sound quite so much like that, but he does occasionally refer to things um, that obviously you can't see, and I will find out if I can provide the presentation in the notes and so you can refer to some of what you're referring to. But I hope there's enough left in the audio that you understand what the company is trying to do. 
podcast. It was quite fascinating. So I'm Chris Longstaff. Uh, I'm the VP of Product Management for uh, MindTech Global. And uh, so I'll take you through today a little bit about our product, Chameleon, um, and, and talk through that. Basically, MindTech's a UK-based startup. Uh, started in, founded in 2017, though really started working in uh, 2018. Um, and we're really all about um, producing solutions for AI, uh, particularly the tool chain that we'll talk about today for synthetic data generation um, and focusing, obviously, business to business markets um rather than than directly to the consumer a uh, very experienced team you'll see there in terms of both the leadership and the board of directors obviously in terms of target markets because of what we're doing it's fairly broad we're doing you know we're really talking about synthetic data uh generating the data that i'll talk a lot about so really going across a large number of markets though focused a lot at the start and smart vision so particularly in terms of retail uh, and in the sort of the safety and security uh, parts of those markets. Obviously, you know, for any AI system, there's a, a few key elements to that. There is the the architecture itself, and obviously these have evolved rapidly over the uh, the last few years. And we have different architectures, you know, going from AlexNet, GoogleNet, through to you know, more modern ones, so ResNet, uh, VGG, all these kinds of different uh, networks. Um, most of these will be obviously developed under some sort of framework, TensorFlow, PyTorch, and so on. But in order to make that do anything useful, obviously we've got to train it with uh, a huge amount of data. And as the, the famous quote from Andrew um, and G says here, you know, it's, it's all about the data. Uh, and really what we're trying to do is you know, get these machines to, to understand and to do that, they need labeled data. I mean, it's an interesting question that we, you know, we get asked by our customers is, well, how many images do I need to train a network for certain things? And obviously, it's, it's not all about the quantities. It's about, you know, are they the correct images you've got? And there's a few examples here, uh, you know, in the automotive world, if you've recorded lots and lots of straight roads, then that's great. But when you come to something like what we have called the magic roundabout in the UK, which is one big roundabout with five smaller roundabouts around it, you know, anyone who's not, you know, a fairly experienced uh, driver and understands roundabouts will very quickly uh, become confused in that. Yeah. We have this uh, concept as well of data drift. Uh, and what we mean by that is that, you know, the requirements for data change over time, sometimes more rapidly, sometimes more slowly. But, you know, the example there, wristwatches, obviously they've changed over time. Um, so if you're trying to recognize a wristwatch, then training something on pocket watches isn't going to give you the right results when you're trying to look for an Apple smartwatch. And again, understanding a scene can be very, very tricky, you know. That first image there, you know, is that people fighting? Are they dancing? You know, what, what's going on there? You know, will your camera recognize that in the middle as a pair of cows or does it recognize it as the advertising poster on a bus? Hmm. So. The, you know, the, the problem here is obviously that we, we need to have data and we need to have, as I said, a lot of high quality data. And we need um, access to that 
And there's very, very few companies who have access to those very large amounts of data. Uh, and even those that do, it's perhaps questionable as to their rights uh, or ways to use it. And certainly those that do uh, mostly don't want to uh, to share that data. Several key issues that we'll sort of cover about, you know, how synthetic data can can help overcome some of these issues in terms of real data. But real data is very expensive to get hold of. So if I go out and record things, it's very expensive takes a lot of time. Real issues around privacy um, and particularly, you know, with respect, obviously, facial data is very common, but even things like seeing vehicles and having vehicle license plates stored can be a key issue for anyone whose system is hacked and has, uh, you know, this kind of data stored. Getting that data not to have bias in it is a, a very, very difficult problem. And uh, that is where, you know, having a very, very broad spread of data is critical. Getting the annotation accuracy, very, very hard for real data and very, very expensive. And the more accurately you want to uh, annotate something, the, the more it uh, is going to cost you. Yeah, what's our solution is synthetic uh, data generation. And, you know, the way that we do this, we create a virtual world. Um, whether that's a hospital like the image in the top right there, an underground station. We add the assets that we're trying to look at in there. So that's the cars, the people and so on. Configure times of day, global variables like weather um, and so on. We then effectively film this and so we create a virtual film. And obviously because we've created that virtual film, we have a full understanding of what the objects are. We place them in the scene so we can create the output masks and so on. And then we have a full tool chain to, uh, to manage that, uh, uh, to manage the uh, data that we've generated. Huge number of advantages to uh, using synthetic images and data. Um, I'll talk through a few of them in a bit more detail. I've mentioned some already. Uh, fast creation of, of very large data sets. Uh, you know, the, the adaptation again there to drift data, obviously very topical at the moment, coronavirus, how do we adapt things which may want to check for things like people wearing uh, face masks. Getting that corner data, so a drone over an airport can be very, very difficult to film in real life, but we can create that kind of corner data using synthetic images. We can rapidly change any environmental conditions, so we can view the same data in different conditions and we can do that effectively instantly. We have many different kinds of um, sensors that we might want to model so not just necessarily RGB cameras we may want to model lidar we may want to model radar uh, as well as the uh, traditional RGB sensors. Uh, multiple cameras at the same time clearly you can do this in real life it's actually very very difficult to uh, synchronize the cameras uh, and uh, make sure that you're looking at the exact same data at the exact same time. And tuning those images, so you see example there of uh, a fisheye type lens and making sure that we 
can uh, match that to the system that's actually going to be used for the inferencing is very, very important. So slide 14, uh, quite a, a detailed slide shows effectively, you know, what's our platform and solution. Um, comes in a number of uh, different elements. The, the key in the middle there, so the, the tool chain that we have in the middle. So we have the, the scenario editor and asset importer, which we'll, we'll talk more about, the simulator and the data set tools. At the top, we have a, a number of what I would call sort of creative elements, uh, which are what are going to configure the scenario for us. So create, if you like, the film set uh, and put the actors into that film set, uh, model exactly what cameras we're going to do. And then we generate that data and those data set tools then are going to take our data. They're going to take customer data, merge in real images and then go through that standard uh, neural network framework to create the train network. All the time, though, what's important is, you know, at the bottom left hand side there, customer use case. So we have to keep bearing in mind, well, what's the end objective for this? You know, what's the customer trying to do? Are they trying to create a pedestrian detector? Do they want to try and uh, identify uh, animals because they're causing false positives on doorbells? You know, all these kinds of things. So that customer use case is critical that that is the, if you like, the cornerstone of uh, everything that we're doing. So just a little bit about, uh, you know, how we go about creating these things. So we've created a scenario editor. The, the reason for this, obviously, we don't expect that the data scientists who we're working with are 3D experts. Uh, you know, the, the data scientists are there to work out the algorithms, work out you know what kind of training data they need but we're not expecting them to be the 3d experts so we create the application pack so that's including the scenes the actors uh various different objects we might want to place into that scene and then have a full ui for a scenario editor where we can effectively drag and drop the different elements with a real-time preview so the data scientists can say okay i see what i you know want to see here i want to check that the people in this office are perhaps wearing face masks because that's the new policy um, and so they'll see real time how this is going to look on the um, the film and then they can use that to effectively create the whole um, film set with actors uh, and visualize that before going ahead and running the simulation. We then send that scenario definition so including all the details of the scenes, the assets, the locations, uh, all the behaviors to the simulator. That's going to create a number of outputs for us. So whether that is, um, you know, the it'll create the visible image. Uh, we may want that visible image to be in Bayer space rather than RGB. Uh, we might want additional data like LIDAR and range data. We want some uh, mask data. So we want obviously individual objects to be identified. And you know, one of the key things about synthetic data as i've mentioned is that you know we can uniquely identify every single object so you know in that instance there you can see the pedestrians are identified actually every single pedestrian there has an individual um, id so if we want to do re-identification for example we can do that quite easily because the same pedestrian will be always identified with the same id if you're using real data it's very very hard for someone to re-identify uh, what the 
um, a single pedestrian is doing, particularly if it's sometime later. You know, if it's someone's gone off screen for 10 minutes in a retail environment, um, then coming back 10 minutes later and work for that person to annotate that that's the same person, that's exceedingly difficult. There's, of course, other advanced annotations that we get, things like velocity vectors. Again, from generating those from 2D data is virtually impossible, um, as is um, things like 3D bounding boxes. Very, very difficult to do um, in a traditional take a, uh, a 2D film of something and then annotate it by hand. Of course, it's very, very important that we have you know great results from this. Um, we have a couple of examples here of, of it working. Um, the first one is actually a third party paper that we wanted to, to share be, just to show that it's not just uh, MindTech who believe in this technology. And what we see here is that um, there's a training done either with a synthetic only, real only or a combination of the real and synthetic. So what we see here is that the, the number one there is basically synthetic only. We see we get very, very good results from that synthetic data. And in fact, the, uh, you know, a lot of customers are coming to us because they have an idea. They think that they, they might want to do something, but investing in recording uh, real world data is very, very expensive. Yet being able to prototype using synthetic data first uh, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you're not going to get the, the ultimate accuracy from that but it at least gives you an idea of whether your algorithm can work or not. Over on the right hand side there, you know, we see that with a, a big real world data set, we get the, the best results when we combine that with the synthetic data. So that bar under three there, that's showing that, you know, we, we have the best um, possible accuracy using uh, a full synthetic data set and full real data set. What we also see is that, you know, in the middle there under two is that actually we could compile a small, a smaller real world data set, augment that with the synthetic data and we'll end up getting a result which is actually superior to spending all that time and money generating a huge real world data set. So, you know, synthetic data may well get us much faster to market because after a short amount of time or a shorter amount of time collecting real world data, augmenting that with synthetic, we're going to end up with some very good results. And, and this one's one from our automotive pack here. Um, and what we've done here is use the, the kiddie data set. And we've augmented that again with our own uh, data here. So from our simulator uh, with a city scene with cars and pedestrians, and we see that the accuracy in uh, the improvement in detection accuracy for cars goes up 6.9% and for pedestrians up 8.4%. So quite a significant result in terms of the improved accuracy. There's another couple of critical things that um, we can do with um, synthetic data. I've mentioned this one before. So basically, optimizing for the deployment system so what we do here is obviously we, we generate what we call gold data so that is uh, a, a very clean image now at the end of the day what is going to be used by the 
uh, deployment system might look very different. Obviously, in the example there, it's a you know it's a severe fisheye lens that's being used. Uh, it could be a very noisy sensor and so on. We have um, the goal date here, which we can then augment and modify by the customer specific system, which means that uh, when the system is actually deployed, the training data that's being used represents that deployment system. That's also going to optimize it. So if you change sensor manufacturers, lens manufacturers halfway through a run, you don't have to throw away your algorithm. You just have to augment and train with that new um, uh, data based on the new camera system. So, you know, just an example here showing, OK, three different cameras, uh, fisheye, you know, uh, black and white, uh, a very low cost, noisy camera. Or, um, and, and each of these can be modeled using that very, very same golden data, uh, but it means that it's the AI system is going to be optimized for your deployment system. I've mentioned this before, but obviously we have a very flexible approach to cameras. We can have multiple cameras together. Um, these cameras can be visual cameras like, uh, you know, RGB cameras, but also things like a LiDAR camera, a radar camera, a thermal camera. So effectively, um, from the same uh, position, we can create that multiple uh, cameras and we can automatically then synchronize all of those. So if you're trying to train something to understand what the world looks like from multiple different cameras, then you have absolutely synchronized uh, data sets. One of the other key things for which is becoming very important. Uh, you know, we see that within the world of uh, AI um, and particularly with ethics um, and for things like automotive, it's very, very important to be able to show where your data has come from. So how you created that with our uh, chameleon system. Well, we have a effectively a, a tagging system which gives provenance tags, uh, which enables uh, anyone to be able to go back and show, well, this is the exact data that was used to create that training data, uh, which was used to train that AI system. Uh, so we, we can basically tag all of the data, and even if it's augmented and so on, uh, we, we will tag that data so that as we have the, uh, the data pack library with all of the images, masks, annotations, that's effectively all tagged with the provenance and the source so that later on you can go back and show exactly where that training data came from. And as I say, for something like automotive, uh, that's critical uh, to be able to have that provenance. I've mentioned already data drift. Obviously, some things, you know, there's there's new use cases comes along where we need to react very fast and going out and filming um, and generating that new data is very, very difficult and very, very time consuming and expensive. So something like coronavirus here, you know, we can create a synthetic data masks. We can then create the, the virtual objects so that for new use cases, um, you know, perhaps it's, it's monitoring how many people in a queue are wearing a mask. Perhaps it's making sure that tables in a restaurant are, are regularly cleared. Perhaps it's trying to look at re-identification of people to 
understand okay who's uh repeat buying and um you know where there's restrictions in terms of purchases so something like synthetic data can help us react much much more quickly than we would be able to react if we were relying on uh, traditional uh, real data So some more benefits, which you know I've already mentioned a little bit, but certainly things like bias reduction. Um, and yeah, you know, bias can be anything. So any, any anything which causes a data set not to have a balance uh, in it. Um, so you know it could be that perhaps all the faces are taken from the wrong angle. Obviously, with synthetic data, we can repeatedly um, rotate the face, generate. Uh, images from lots of different angles to help train that uh, data set. I've mentioned privacy. You know, it, it's clearly a, a big issue for for training data. And again, alongside the provenance that I've just talked about, um, this uh, data privacy here. Uh, you know, using synthetic data allows us to generate scenes without the risk of uh, people. Um, or uh, businesses becoming um, uh, concerned about the privacy issues. Again, mentioned this case already. So the drone in an airport. You know, if I really want to understand that, you know, is it a bird? Is it a drone? And, I, and I'm trying to create that data set. Then there's no way that this could even be filmed in the real world. No one's going to allow me to film drones near airports. It will be very, very dangerous. So we uh, can create those synthetic data cases um, for that, those difficult corner cases. Again, I, I think I've mentioned most of these, the uh, advanced annotations that we can get. So basically it allows new use cases. So uh, if you have something, you know, a time of flight sensor, which perhaps can measure, uh, create point clouds, measure velocities and so on. And we can use that in conjunction with uh, visual cameras and the synthetic data can provide us training data for that to teach AI systems, uh, you know, new for new algorithms and, and new use cases that with manual annotation we just couldn't achieve. Um, and then just lastly, obviously, you know, the whole of our um, simulator is designed to be very, very scalable. So. Um, we've done some work uh, well, with multiple companies, but AMD in particular, on ensuring that we can scale across uh, multiple different CPUs, GPUs, uh, to make sure that our uh, simulator is highly scalable. So where you want to generate massive quantities of data, uh, we can generate those uh, that data uh, very, very efficiently. Uh, by using all available compute resources. So the synthetic data, where like where does it come from? Is it um, from your libraries or do people create it themselves? So if I go right back to, to uh, probably this diagram here, uh, or maybe actually this one here, uh, what we do, so we we would get some some scenes. So the um, the buildings you see there in the application pack. Um, maybe if I can enlarge that a little bit, it probably doesn't look great, but I don't know if that shows in large view. But, you know, 
we, we create that scene. So that, that scene there would basically be a 3D object and we would get a graphic studio to create that for us. So we're not artists. So we get a graphic studio to create that for us. Similarly with the uh, the people, the uh, the objects, all of those kinds of things, we would get a studio to create that for us. And then what we do, so um, like, like the scene that you see here, we would with the, using that scenario editor, that's where we place the people in the scene, we place the items in the scene and the camera in the scene there so that we're then determining, OK, how are we going to effectively generate images from this? So it's effectively like, you know, think of it as a virtual film set. But, but we we license in the graphics, but they don't have any behaviors. So, you know, for example, you know, we, we might license a person but they won't be knowing how to walk how to react with the scene they won't understand what uh, particular behaviors they should exhibit so that's obviously all of the things that we are doing and how do you what well, what kind of um minimum quality do you think models should have to make them useful to people and their training data so that, that's a very interesting question um the it's going to depend very very much on use case um you know, we've found for example that to do a pedestrian detector you know the the quality can be fairly moderate because it's more about the position the angle and making sure that you know they are uh anatomically correct and it's it's more about you know how the teaching the machine to see against different backgrounds different lighting conditions and so on if you're going to go and try to do some facial recognition training then obviously you need to make sure that you've got something which is uh you know fairly anatomically correct um and and you need some some fair accuracy in terms of that so it, it really does depend on the use case but actually it's sometimes it's difficult for us because people you know would see something and they say well that doesn't look like that mm. you know I, I don't think that looks very realistic and then we have a problem to sell it but actually from a computer point of view and from a training point of view it makes little difference mm. so it does depend but actually surprisingly it's not necessarily as important as people might think and on the subject of uh, diversity, you mentioned there a couple of times, which is certainly something that is quite important and quite interesting here. How do you, or how, how do you guarantee slash encourage, I suppose is the better word, that there is a diversity of models? Is it just making sure they're there? or like, And, and also as part of that journey, did you find that the models were lacking in the first place in terms of diversity? So, so today it's still unfortunately quite a manual process. Um, it's about identify, you know, you, using your test cases, identifying where you're failing, um, and then trying to generate more data to to overcome that. Uh, it's definitely something that we are actively researching, and will you know hope that we will you know start to have better solutions for than a, a fully manual. One. So obviously, you know, at the moment, it's down to the skill of the data scientist to make sure that the test cases that they are using are representative, review the test cases and see the failings 
and then say, okay, you know, you know, and bias. Obviously, typically people think of it as you know, uh, not having enough, you know, perhaps people of different ethnic origins in their their things. But it's it's everything like uh, cars. So, uh, you know, do you have too many red cars, which is actually uh, throwing what the uh, you know when the the machine understanding is of a car. Do you not have enough pickup trucks? And that's uh, throwing them saying so, you know, all these kind of things uh, can be identified. But as I say, today it's a, a manual process, but that's definitely something that we are working on. And just, I mean, this might not be a question you want to answer. I'm not sure. Or, and also it might just show my ignorance of kind of how this could look in a, in a real world production kind of training environment. But my experience of having looked at uh, modelled scenes in the past, usually these sorts of things you see outside uh, building plans and, and things like that, and everything always kind of looks a bit too perfect. <laughs> and everyone all looks kind of too perfect. And I, I just wonder, do you, do you find those sorts of consequences with these models, that everyone just looks a little bit too unlike real people? You you definitely, you know, it's definitely, again, one of the things that is you, you need to be cautious of is that, you know, everything is, you know, clean and and, and perfect. And as I say, one of the things, for example, um, you know, is, is making sure that we model the cameras mm. to model the camera noise, because obviously when you have a camera in low light, you're not picking up this clean, perfect image. You're picking up something which is noisy and has mm-hmm. chroma speckling on it and so on. So, you know, that that's important. Okay. But you're right. In terms of the real world, you know, if you've got 20 cars going past uh, and you look out, you know, I look out of my window now out of those 20 cars, then, you know, probably 19 of them are a little bit dirty. Probably two of them have a big dent in them. <laughs> uh, probably three of them uh, have uh, stickers on the bumper. All yeah, these kinds. Yeah. So, so you're right. You know, there is a, a lot of that. Now, there are certain things that we are evolving the simulator for to try to add more variations in that today we do it but it is a more of a manual process than we'd like again programmatic chaos yeah yeah so it's it's it's, you know it's a very good point that you make um and and it is definitely something that you know today we handle in a way uh you know we, we do handle it uh, but it is not nearly as automated as we would like and that's something that is being developed right now uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, fixing that. And just to clarify, I know you had a slide on this, but just to kind of go into a bit more detail, what's the kind of the, where where does Chameleon sit in the data scientist tool chain? And I guess what, um, I mean, you listed a few on the slide, like is it basically just replacing that kind of manual finding of, of data sets pretty much? So- so, so I, I mean, we see it definitely. It's it's a tool, yeah. if you like, in the the data scientist toolbox. Because you know, if you look at this the the diagram of the Chameleon platform, you know, today what the data scientist does is, you know, they will get that customer's real images box down at the bottom there, yeah. and that's you know uh, an image and a, a labeled image there that you see with the yeah. the outline bounding boxes. And they basically they'll take that to train their their network. Mm. So what we're saying is, okay, you know, that's great, but you're not going to have all the right data from that. So our data set tools there, in fact, will basically um, 
merge that re those real images with our synthetic images, automatically generate your test, your validation, mm. your training data sets, and then you send that through to the neural network. They also then, the data set tools will give you uh, feedback in terms of, uh, okay, this is the, the statistics, so you've done your training and now here's the statistics, mm. and, and enable you then to, again, it, today it's a manual process, the data scientist can look and go, okay, that's that's not quite right, I need some some more data here, so I'll, I'll add it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, t taking the, again, the, you know, the example of coronavirus, Today, a data scientist has probably got a data set that he's trained faces on and says, okay, my face recognition algorithm works really well and it works, you know, great across all different yeah. ethnicities and, and, I can, <laughs> and, and, and I can, you know, count yeah. the number of people. But now, hey, it's not really working or I want to actually differentiate those people with and without a face mask. Mm. You know, we can very quickly generate our data. So that's where that mm. augmentation comes in there. So that's a very good use case you gave, but uh, in as much as you're allowed to, are you able to mention any um, live real-world cases of people actually using the tool? So, um, I mean, we we have got our first customers to the tool, and I can't talk about okay. the specific use yep, cases, sure. but they are. Um, so, so one customer is in uh, the retail environment, um, and one of the use cases that they are looking at um, is uh, shelf occupancy, um, understanding they're doing things, understanding, you know, how shelves are occupied, how consumers take items from shelves. So wanting to get, build a picture of uh, the, the way that that works. Um, another use case that someone has is uh, they're trying to understand um, how long, people go into a store for mm. and whether that the correlation between people who have purchased something and those that haven't and i mean that's an incredibly complex problem mm. it's trying to understand you know the uh, amount of time someone goes in it's like personal re-identification uh, how you exactly identify uh, and in an anonymous fashion mm. um what they've done uh, but, you know, th there's that kind of thing where, you know, again, it's a combination of real and synthetic, but the use of synthetic data, because you can re-identify people, uh, helps them with that mm -hmm. uh, that training. And I mean, obviously, this is a relatively new product anyway, but um, what's on the roadmap for the next six months or so? So there's a number of different things. You know, I've hinted, obviously, we, you know, we don't want to say too much publicly until they're, they're ready. You know, I, I've hinted at, you know, there's certainly more automations coming uh, in terms of, you know, some of the behaviors that we've, you know, we've discussed both bias and, uh, you know, the, the imperfections in the world. So there's more automation coming from that point of view. Um, we are looking at, um, you know, the visual quality as well. And, and actually one of... Um, so our um, VP of AI strategy, um, Justin Bronder, who came from Microsoft, you know, he's got a lot of expertise with this. And one of the things he's actually tasked with is uh, trying to determine for us, well, you know, what, what is required in terms of this, you know, the very good question you asked in terms of visual quality and, and you know, where, where does it matter and how does it matter? But we are making, you know, improvements in the render pipeline in terms of that uh, visual quality. I have one final question that 
is probably somewhat uh, important to my audience especially, which is this looks like quite a fascinating tool and, and something that people will possibly want to try. Is it possible for anyone just to, to try or is, is it uh, on appointment only? You know, is there a self-serve option? How, how, how can, if, if can, people so, try? So, 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 to, so today it, it is a, you know, contact yep. us and we can arrange a demo. We can arrange something like that. Uh, we are considering whether we can, um, and it's something that I think we will do because I'm, I'm pushing it, is to open up some data packs. Okay. So to yeah. give some example images and annotations that we just allow yeah. anyone to download. It will also help you get feedback on some of those as well. So, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so that's you know that that's definitely within the plan. But obviously, we just need to you know make sure that we have the the right structure in place. Yeah. Obviously, we we're not a massive company yet, so we can't support you know a thousand yep. users all trying to use that yep. and asking us questions. But we don't want to put something out there which then just annoys people because they say, "Well, I can't use it because I don't have the right formatting. How do I do this?" Yeah. I'm getting ignored by MindTech. So we do want to do something like that, uh, but obviously we're just making sure we do it in the right manner. That was my interview with Chris Longstaff of MindTech. I hope you enjoyed that. Okay, what's new? Well, I'm still working on the Storytelling Podcast, the Board Game Jerk Podcast based on my Board Game Jerk Twitter bot, um, which you can find where you would expect on Twitter. We did some test recordings of that. We are working through that. Um, I am starting the solo game live stream on my Twitch channel, which I don't think is on my website. I should get this stuff on my website um, at some point in the next few days as well. I'm also taking part in the Crit Test Dummies live stream, which you can also find on Twitch. So have a look there. I will try to put all these links on my website as much as possible. I have a few articles in progress. They will <laughs> just keep it on my website. I think it's the easiest thing to do. I need to update it. I also need to update the look and feel of it a bit. I've been struggling to figure out how to put in other sorts of content, like update content, um, other things I do and stuff like that. I, I need to have a blog for my blog, <laughs> I think. Uh, but anyway, various things in progress there. Um, keep an eye on <laughs> my various social profiles, which you can find on christianshitter.com. Please rate, review, share if you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you. Again, you can find details at christianshitter.com. And until next week, thank you very much for listening.